0: All right, and welcome back to The Artenders, everybody. Today we have a very special guest with us. Um, he is a several best-selling novelist, uh, he, uh, including his most recent work, The Man Who Came Up Town. He is Emmy-nominated, fancy, and he uh, has worked as a writer, creator, and producer on The Deuce, Treme, uh the the pacific and the wire which is what brought us uh to him uh how how he got on our radar and then obviously we've trickled into the rest of his career and it's been absolutely insane um so speaking of the fact that you are emmy nominated i'm curious right off the bat uh are you an award hunter at all or is it just like it's nice if you get one and that's really not even on the board for you at all
1: uh not not really an award hunter i uh I will go if if I'm nominated. I'll go out of courtesy, but uh, I don't expect much. And and I treated the Emmys like a uh, like a date for my wife and I. You know, we went out there and we had some fun. Oh,
0: I'm sure. Did Did you ever live in L.A. or were you always based in Baltimore?
1: I'm actually D.C. <laughs>
0: D.C. I apologize. D.C. Yeah,
1: and uh, and I've never lived out west. Um, I've I've only the only time I've left the D.C. area is to shoot and uh you know I've lived in New Orleans and I lived in New, New York for 3 years and uh but basically I've always lived here and 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 I'll stay here because my life's work is really writing about the city through the novels.
2: Did you live in New Orleans and New York uh for that extended period of time because of your work with Tremé and the Deuce respectively?
1: Yes. Yeah um I, I was producing those shows too so you have to be there all the time and you and you you really want to be there but if you're writing about a city that you're not uh that isn't your native city you need to get out there and and, and uh and live in it and and i'm am a I'm a walker anyway so i you know both of those places i walked around a lot at night uh and and when i was in new york uh you know, I never had a car, so I took the subway everywhere, including to set wherever it was, and and that's how you learn a, learn a city. is is just, I mean, I've been doing it since I was a kid, really, and and is is being on out there in the world, public transportation, all that stuff, and and listening to people talk.
0: We've been talking to writers recently a lot about how uh, how they get inspiration and and where they know they're going to find material. Um, in, in, in terms of just writing uh, when they aren't directly inspired by something? Is that usually um, where you find it walking around in, in the city?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where you hear the voices. And, you know, if you have that, uh, if you sort of have that gene, that writer's gene, where you, you, you hear people talking and it sinks in. Um, for me, it goes all the way back to when I was a kid here and, Um, my, uh, my dad had a diner downtown DC and my mom and dad, I was 11 years old. They said, uh, it's time to go to work. So, uh, at 11, I would get on at 11 years old. I got on the bus, the DC transit every day, and I went downtown and transferred to another bus. And I was on a bus for about 45 minutes every day on a public bus and, and just, it was a tremendously um, interesting time for a kid because it was the summer of 68 and it was right after the riots here in DC and the city had changed, you know, I was going through neighborhoods that had burned down and, and I was on the bus with primarily um, uh, black Washingtonians because Washington was a black city then. it was 70 75% black and I had what I saw was that the people had had after this sort of cleansing event had, you know, this rain had come and cleared the streets and the people had changed. And in, you know, on top of that, this was the late 60s was a time of upheaval with, uh, you know, cultural revolution and that sort of thing. And there were a lot of exciting things happening in the city that for a guy who was going to be a writer and I didn't know it yet. Where it was it was tremendously stimulating to me, and it formed me. I mean, I my parents are gone, and, and but silently I always thank them for giving me that opportunity to go to work at eleven years old in a city by myself, because that's what that's what made me a writer.
2: When did you finally come to that decision when you were older? um Before. Uh, you had written your first novel, Firing Offense, in 1992. When was it that you had that sort of epiphany to yourself? Okay, I want to write a novel. This is what I want to do.
1: Well, it's it's a little complicated because I was a movie freak growing up and and I wanted to make movies. That was my goal. And But then I started figuring out, well, somebody writes these movies, right? And, you know, there's that step too. And Um, and, and I was a film major at the university of Maryland. That was still my goal when I was in college and I was making short films and that kind of thing. And then my senior year, I took a uh, class in detective fiction as a, uh, in in crime fiction as a, as a, um, as an elective just to I'd get an easy grade. I thought
0: it's a fantastic class. Yeah.
1: It, it was it was awesome man i i and this teacher uh, charles mish this professor turned me on to books and reading and and the first kind of books that i could relate to because crime fiction is about the working class as opposed to um most american fiction is about people winners you know success and i i i changed direction i just des- i i decided then that maybe I could do this myself. It's something that I, I thought I could do because I felt I was a good writer. I had, uh, you know, I had, I had teachers who told me growing up, you know, you're, you, you can write, you know, you've got this talent. And it seemed like it was something attainable uh, as opposed to being a film director or, or a filmmaker, which was seemed like a much harder thing to do, especially for, you know, a Greek American kid who was, Living in D.C. and was never gonna, probably never gonna go anywhere outside the city. So I changed direction and uh, and I wrote a book when I was 31 years old and it got published. Wow! And that's
0: so fascinating. That was your intro into into crime fiction. That's wild. I thought that it would be, you know, like the the excitement of it or the types of stories they end up telling, but it was the people that it attracted or Mm -hmm. the characters that it attracted. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and the and the books that I read were were really good books. The guy on the syllabus it was uh, Chandler and Hammett and and Ross Macdonald and um, and John Le Carre and and John D McDonald. And in fact, uh, the book that we read in that class, The Deep Blue Goodbye, which is the first Travis McGee novel, was probably the most influential book in terms of me wanting to become a writer and uh there's an ending to that story because 40 years later i just adapted it for fox Um, and uh i think it's going to be a movie wow
2: that's really exciting wow
1: (laughs) that is unbelievable or did, did did or have you been able to uh meet with your professor since and tell him the exciting news he's passed away but i'm i'm uh in contact with his um his girlfriend and we talk and I've got his, I've got a Polaroid picture of him right over my desk here.
0: That is fascinating. I, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, but I mean, that's, that's, an, that's an incredible story, especially as an intro to, to writing.
1: Well, you know, and, and, and also to, I know there's a lot of uh, people that are listening to this that want to be writers. You, you have to realize also that I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't, I didn't know any, uh, I'd never been to New York, so I didn't know any publishers or agents or anybody in the business. I didn't go to a writing school so where you make contacts and, and that's one of the values of a writing school is that, you know, you, your fellow students are all trying to be writers and you eventually potentially can get an agent through them and that sort of thing. I didn't have any of the, those opportunities and I wrote this book blindly and I sent it up to New York without an agent and it and it landed on the slush pile of an editor up there and it took him a year to get back to me. Um, and I sorta of forgot about it. And he, he called and left a message on my answering machine a year later and said, I just picked this up off the slush pile. We want to publish it. That's how I got started.
2: <laughs> so when so you're now kind of fast forward a little bit, you're in the middle of your writing career, uh, and you keep expanding uh this world with your characters, uh, and how Maybe like sometimes, so in the case of like you wrote uh, a multitude of books that was um, centralized on Nick Stefanos, but then you would also expand into other books that's not necessarily about Nick Stefanos, maybe with Derek Strange instead, but then would still feature some of the same characters. What always kept you coming back to the same world that you constructed for your characters? What about the writing experience that really brought you back to that as opposed to uh, wanting to tell a new, fresh story outright?
1: Well, I think, you know, the, in my mind, the, the world, the fictional world exists. It, it's real to me. So why wouldn't characters from previous novels be walking through it and, and making cameo appearances and that kind of thing? And, and so this world that I constructed was, to me, a real world. And um, once I got out of the Nick Stefanus of it all, which were, those were first-person novels, um, I think the books got started to get better because I was writing about characters that I that weren't me in effect. I was stretching out into third person and people who were unlike me and that sort of thing. and that's when they that's when the books got, I think got richer. Um, but I always intended and continue to intend to stay here uh, in that world when I'm writing books because'm I'm, I'm trying to leave behind a a library of books about Washington, D.C., and that that kind of go through uh, time and different time periods and that sort of thing. And when I started, nobody was really writing about this city in that way. There are other writers now that are doing it and doing it well. But at the time, the Washington novel was about politics or was about the Pentagon and the living city was never a part of Washington literature. That
0: is fascinating that you're talking about that the um, where you go and and this fictional world that you really uh, consume yourself with. It kind of reminded me of there was a video that I saw of you uh, and a, and a few other writers and at one point you said that it takes you a good five or six months to to um, to have like your first draft or, or or not your first draft like a rough draft but but to to have it, have your manuscript and I'm curious how long does it take for you to for you personally to have a first rough draft or are you a get it done and then edit for as long as it takes or is it that it really takes you a very long time to the, most of your time to uh, to get in that headspace and to really you know figure out the world before you start writing
1: well I usually front load all the research and and that might be a couple months of uh, not just library research, but uh, or you know now internet research, but also just getting out there and talking to people and doing the stuff that I, I used to do, which is riding with the police and all you know, attending trials, doing all these things. Um, but once I start writing, I, I have a real uh, strict regimen. I, I write seven days a week. I write two shifts. I do a, a morning shift that goes to a, a late lunch, so you know, four or five hours. And then I come back at night and I rewrite what I did in the morning. And with the idea that um, I'm ready to go forward the next day rather than get stuck uh, on what I've written already. And in this way, and it's worked out for me historically, and I'm not saying that it's the only way to write a book or the right way. But for me, um, when I have my first draft done, that's pretty much the book. I've never gone back and done an extensive rewrite on a book. Um, I've polished it at that point, and if I feel like it's ready, I'll send it up to. Uh, I'll send it up to New York.
2: Are there any books that you have written that once you like finish that draft and you're like, actually, no, I don't want to send this out? Are there any books that you have that haven't seen the light of day?
1: No.
0: That's fantastic. Just a stone cold no, <laughs> absolutely not. What a record, though. That's <laughs> insane. Do, do, yeah. do you start and stop? Or are you like, once I've started it, I'm knee deep in the research and it's just too fascinating not to keep going?
1: I think it, it's more that you have to have faith. Um, you know, there there are a lot of days where you're stuck and, and where you, you have a lot of doubt about what you're doing, but you have to you have to have the confidence that, uh, especially after the first couple of books that I wrote, that at that point I knew I could do it and that it would work out. But I'm a really firm believer in in going to work every day. And I don't believe in putting a book away for a month or a couple months and coming back to it. Um, I think you got to gut it out. And and the the more consistently you stay in that tunnel uh, of, of, daily work, the better the book is, because once you leave it, it's that much harder to get back into that tunnel, that creative tunnel. And, um, you know, so that's the way it's worked for me is you just, I, yeah, I, I guess my, my main statement is I don't believe in writer's block. I know it exists. You, you have to just work your way through it and not use it as a crutch.
0: Well, yeah, there's something I think really important about the fact that pretty much every single, writer that we've talked to that has had a lot of success in their career, especially longevity, you know, that they've written a bunch. Most of, like, just like you said, you guys have made a full-time schedule for yourself. You have forced yourself into a work mentality, um, which I think is where some of the coolest work comes from because, or where some of your coolest pieces come from, because just like you said, it's a matter of research and find the story if if, if you're not you know if, if you're not making one up all of a sudden or you're not in, in your zone or in your pocket then what do you do where where you go there and that's that's impeccable that that you're that you're able to uh you know f- find your way through that i love the no writer's luck thing that's so good well,
1: you know I, I look at it again to to bring my father up he had his own business um, he was very, he was very happy when he was at the, at the diner, at the store, because it was his, you know what I mean? And, 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 and so he turned the key in that lock every morning to open that place up. If he didn't do it, he, he wouldn't have made a living. So, you know, I come down here to my office every day at nine, nine o'clock in the morning and I open the doors and I consider it, I consider it to be a job. I get dressed every day. I'm in the house. I could be wearing some sweat clothes or something like that or shorts, but I get dressed for work, you know, and I, and I treat it as such. And because I'm self-employed too, you know, um, and, you know, you just have to treat it like a job. The art, the art thing is it comes with the work, but you have to do the work.
2: So now kind of looking yourself, looking at yourself like through your career and then seeing yourself then like, as a novelist and then also as a screenwriter and then also as a producer. Could you speak on the, um, the experiences and what were different about those and how maybe your experience as a screenwriter uh, perhaps influenced your, your work as a novelist?
1: So at the end of, like, let's say the, the latter part of the 90s, um, I one of my books got optioned for, uh, uh, King Suckerman got optioned by uh, Miramax. And I made a part of my deal that I would write the script for it. Uh, and so I did. It didn't get made, but it got the script got around and I started getting calls to do uh, doctor, you know, script doctoring work for other productions, which I did. And then um, I hadn't done any television at that point. And in fact, you know, I didn't have any aspirations to do television because when I was growing up, you know, television was like uh, Barnaby Jones and the Beverly Hillbillies and all these big right. b- yeah like it wasn't something that you aspire to do. But then, um, I, you know, I guess really Oz on HBO broke the door open. And at, at around this time, uh, I met I met David Simon through um, his now wife Laura Littman, the writer, and we had Laura and I were friends and she gave David one of my books. And he read it. And he um, he uh, spoke to me and he said, you know, do you, I've got this show. I just sold HBO. It's called the wire. And, uh, he definitely underplayed it. He said, uh, it's about police and drug dealers in Baltimore. Do you want to write an episode first season? And, uh, you know, because he read this book of mine, sweet forever, which was sort of an urban, um, a deep urban crime novel that, that touched on a lot of social issues. And I said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So I wrote, um, the uh without being up there i wrote the for per- my first episode which is consequently it was the one where um wallace is killed by his friends and oh my god uh, <laughs> that was made an impact you know a lot of people thought it was powerful and um david got uh you know got a hold of me and he said uh listen i i'd like you to come full-time on season two we're planning this um this uh, season about the dock workers and there's going to be a lot of Greeks in it. We need somebody who, who can, uh, you know, speak Greek and write Greek dialogue and that kind of thing. Little did I know that the Greek wasn't even Greek as everybody knows now, you know, such an inconsequential part of that season, but he just wanted me to work on the show. So I came up and I, I eventually became a producer and I, and I worked five years on The Wire and that's, where i learned how to be a writer and television writer and producer and um so it's that's a little background but now i'm going to answer your question is the biggest adjustment for me was um uh working with other writers in a room that was uh that could get contentious at time at times there was a lot of uh, it was a lot of testosterone in that room and it was a lot of Guys, including me who thought we were the best writer in the room and which is you know really what you want you want a bunch of people who think that they're that they're the best and they're and competitive and they want to write the best scripts that's what you want to get out of it um but it was difficult for me at first because you know in a writing school like the iowa writers workshop for example. That's what you do every day. You're in a room with other writers and they critique your work. Well, nobody had ever done that with me before and I didn't really like it. You know, that was a little difficult to get used to, but it also put a chip on my shoulder in the sense that I wanted to get better. You know, I, I wanted to get better so that when when I wrote a script, the, the more that I, um, I wanted to get as much as what I wrote into the final script rather than turn in a script and then see it later on with only thirty percent of what I wrote making it to the screen. I wanted to get ninety percent of what I wrote making it to the screen. And uh, you know, by the third season, I had I had it wired. I mean, I, I um, the script that you that you mentioned that was nominated for an Emmy, which was uh, episode three eleven, Middle Ground, was pretty much you know ninety some percent me, my my draft. And so I learned it, you know, and 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 I learned it because I wanted it was selfish. I wanted to be in control of what I was doing.
0: Right. Well, I'm sure the adjustment to to going into a writer's room is insane, especially considering so many of the writers in that specific room were novelists or solo writers or had their own careers outside of uh, television or, or, or film prior. That's, that, that's one of the funniest parts to me, like looking at the list of writers for The Wire and realizing how many of those people that was either their for, first or one of their first films, television projects.
1: Right. We had, uh, you know, we had Lahane, and I was friends with Dennis Lahane for going back well before that we had come up together as novelists. Uh, Richard Price was, was the big one. You know, he'd, his book, Clocker's, was probably the most influential book on the wire of any novel that had been written up to that time. And he was sort of a legend. And 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 like I said, it was we respected each other, but we were all very competitive. And because of that first season, the first episode I write wrote in season one, which was the penultimate episode, and that event that happened in it, the death of Wallace. I had an unofficial um, deal with David that I would always write the penultimate episode in The Wire. And it was it happened to be the episode where a lot of a lot of things happened. You know, a lot of characters got killed, some big dramatic scenes. And, you know, we used to sit in the room and the guys would say, uh, oh, you're going to give him that. And, you know, here's my script with a bunch of people talking in a room. And you've got Omar and uh, Brother Mazzone stalking Stringer Bell for you know what I mean? Like they were giving, giving me all the good stuff, and of course I didn't care.
2: But with you writing penultimate episodes, at least for season one, two, and three, George, you're responsible for killing a lot of characters. Oh on my the wire. gosh!
1: I didn't even think about that. Yeah, they uh, somebody somebody made T-shirts. I think it was it was probably on Charmay because I, I wrote the episode where uh, Steve Earl got killed on that one too, and. Um, somebody made t-shirts with my name on it with a pen and there was blood coming off the pen <laughs> people were wearing them on sets and then they got to the they got to the point where you know people were waiting for the scripts to drop that i had written to see who was going to get killed right right that
2: the actors would find out oh george is writing the script oh no oh, right
1: oh, exactly. am i safe <laughs> like, looking oh, around god. oh god they got him again yeah right well we didn't the thing of it is, is we, we have a policy in, in today in the shows we're making today as well as you don't really want to tell the actor that their numbers up. And uh, for the simple reason that, um, you know, you don't want people telegraphing their performance. If they know they're going to die in episode eight, they might, it might show up in their performance. So that is, that's a good strategy, except it's, uh it's not it's not always something that the actors like and because in effect you're giving them a pink slip when that when that script drops
2: (laughs) it's i mean but yeah it's definitely the big difference between at least uh theater and tv where like in theater you read the entirety of the script and in order to understand the given circumstances as opposed to in tv where a lot of it is informed just from the first script you get and from the writers and or directors. Is that like an accurate statement to make, would you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, you can't feel bad because these guys, these people we're talking about, you know, like Michael B. Jordan and Andrew Selva and Michael K. Williams, mm-hmm. they've all done very well in life.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not like you're kicking them to the curb. Yeah,
1: they're you're sending them off with
0: plenty in their pocket. Yeah, they they know what they're doing.
1: Yeah, they're doing great.
0: You were talking about um, writing in this in this room with all of these uh, incredible writers. Even if you didn't realize it at first, or maybe you did. Um, uh, eventually, you got to a place where you realized, oh my gosh, I'm writing with some real legends in here, like like a Richard Price, like a David Simon. So. Um, what, what would you say you learned from them, from writing alongside them, mm-hmm. um, uh, getting used to a writer's room, having to, you know, having to be in a contributive type setting? What did you, what did you learn from the way that they write that uh, influenced the way that you wrote for the rest of your life after?
1: I just think that, uh, well, being around good writers is always, always elevates your work and you know, I think it's probably in the case of the novelists, it's probably more accurate to say that I learned more from reading their books than I did from reading their scripts. But the, com- the combination of that and just the discussions that were in the writer's room really made you um, a- ambitious, made you want to write, be a better writer. And it did make you a better writer because, you know, when you're alone writing a novel, as I had been for many years, it's only my ideas that are, that are driving the narrative and the characters. And when you're in a room with a lot of smart people, um, it's everybody's ideas that are contributing to what you write. And so I think that I became a better writer working on that show, um, being around all these people and also, um, which a lot of writers don't wanna talk about is that screenwriting is a very useful thing for a novelist too, because it disciplines you to write, to try to convey emotions through dialogue and action rather than the crutches of, you know, backstory, internal monologue, that kind of thing. Um, It just makes you, it it makes you better, you know, and makes you leaner. And, and just all around better. Um, and the other thing that I want to dispel is that um, because we had some people come through, not on that show, but on other shows I've done where we've had some novelists come through who came in and said, you know, this is going to be easy. Like uh, I'm, a lit- I'm a literary novelist. You know, this is just action in words. I'll, I'll do this in my sleep. And honestly, those people, Never made it. They didn't make it as screenwriters because they didn't respect it enough, and it does and it demands respect because in many ways, screenwriting for the for the reasons that I just gave you is 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 harder in a lot of ways than writing a novel, and and the good ones uh, like uh, you know like Simon and and uh, and, and Richard Price and Lahang. They sweat just as hard, they sweat blood writing a script as they do when they, when they write a novel or a book. Um, because, because of the intent. And the intent is they want it to be as good, and I want my scripts to be as good as anything I publish as a novel.
0: And it's, and it's fascinating that you're talking about the, the, the ability to translate what or, or uh, adapt your skills from being a novelist to uh, screenwriting. Especially because, uh, especially the Wire is such an interesting show to do that on. Considering when we've talked about this several times on the podcast and in in reviewing the show, that it has the most interesting relationship with subtext and with silence Um, out of really any show that that I've seen. I'm sure. Yeah, we talked about that for sure. Yeah, that the specifically the scene that was happening underneath the scene, as well as moments that you guys had where it was just like exchanging a glance or something that 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 was the maybe the juiciest part of the entire episode that um that i'm sure like is such a skill that you can uh, that you can put into writing novels but that is not something that just comes directly from writing novels like that's that's a a very specifically the wire thing that that I've had to start trying to practice on in the stuff that I'm writing that I'm like, Oh God, that's a good idea. I should, I should play with that.
1: You've got a lot of help when you're a screenwriter. Let's say on a television show, let's narrow it down. You've got a lot of help. Uh, This is another thing that writers don't like to admit, but um, you know, crew, um, the DP, the director, the, the actors, especially the talent, they elevate your work. You know, it it might be just okay on the page, but then you've got all these people helping you later on to to elevate it. And um, and I'll give you an example is the um, in in middle ground in 311, probably the best thing I ever wrote and maybe the best thing I've ever written is that scene between um, uh, uh, Avon and and Stringer Bell on the roof. When they're saying goodbye to each other. Oh God, yeah. I um, mean, that's
2: where the subtext is probably the hottest during the entirety of the show. Right.
1: And you know, I just told you that I thought it was I, I thought it was really good writing, humbly, but I'm not saying that it was. Okay. But <laughs> if you look at that, you've got two tremendous actors uh, taking those words and and putting them up on to another level. And you've got uh, the director, Joe Chappelle, the way he shot it, the way he used the lenses that he used. If you watch it again, you know, that you use long lenses at time to flatten it out. And all you see is the colors of the city behind these guys as they're, you know, as they're uh, doing their dialogue back and forth. And, you know, that's the magic of filmmaking is what it can do to writing. So uh, I've just got to give credit to a lot of people for that.
0: Yeah. Especially on. Well, really, all all the shows you've been a part of, the the Wire, Tremé, the the Deuce, they all seem to have a general tone of collaboration. Like every single interview that I've seen from every person on all those shows, talk nonstop about how um, how they feel very helped. You know, like everyone's actually like you you use the word help that everyone's actually uh, c- contributing in each other's jobs. Yes, everyone has like like you know this is the writer and this is the actor, but at the end of the day everyone seems to have like a really decent relationship with everyone else. Um, and that doesn't sound incredibly normal. Uh, like that that's always the case. Like the actors don't always see the writers, but it seems like that's pretty consistently the case with, um, with a lot of projects that we've seen of, of yours and, and, and David Simon's.
1: We're, we're pretty focused on what we're doing and um, you don't see us like uh, some other people that have these big deals at the at the streamers and the cablers and all that that have like three or four shows going at once we we do one thing at a time um when we when we're shooting if, if it's if david and i are partners one of us is on set every single day from call to wrap and and uh and if i you know if i'm on set david's in the editing room and, and vice versa you know like we're on, we're on top of it and We've got a tremendous producer that's been with us on all these shows, Nina Noble, who really runs everything. And um, but we just believe that you gotta be there. Uh you've got to be there watching everything. And and by example, people see you there and they know that you care. And they and they work harder too, for that reason.
2: In the context of the Greeks in season two of The Wire. Uh, at least from uh from the writer to actor relationship how much were you there not ne- not necessarily were you there but how much consultation I think I would say uh would you give uh for the actors in order to aid their performance and aid uh the overall storytelling from the show
1: in, in what respect are you talking about just the Greek stuff
2: I guess yeah specifically like the Greeks and combined with your greek background and the fact that your father uh and by extension soon yourself uh owned a diner and they also had scenes take place in a diner like little things like that how much say i suppose did you have in those in the little things
1: i think you know well one thing if david was here right now i know exactly what he'd say is that there was that diner in the season two johnny's diner and we always met stuff like that and and the first time I walked on set, I said to David, "You know, this is bullshit. Like a Greek would never own a dirty place like this." <laughs> he always brings that up. You know, why why was I so focused on that? But uh, I just was. And the same thing on in Leon, uh, you know, Leon's Diner in the Deuce, which was a big set for us. I was always very focused on what, because uh, I grew up in a place like that. You know right. What I mean? Um, and, and a lot of the actors, uh, you know, sometimes I would write dialogue, but I'd have to, I'd have to call my mom and my mom was still alive at the time. And she was, uh, fluent in Greek. I'm, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent fluent, but she was, if I had something really difficult or colloquial, I would call her. And sometimes I would call her from set because an actor would have a, uh, a question about it. You know, what, how, how can I say this differently? That kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I had her on call and some of my other Greek friends were on call too. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was on it.
2: The diner that your father used to own, is that a, uh, restaurant that you still frequent?
1: Well, it, uh, recently, uh, got, was gutted during the pandemic. Uh, the guy who had it after my dad finally left and they, they pulled it out, but I, I used uh, and I, I used to go down there a couple. You know, up until then, I went down there a couple times a year, and I would, I would sit at the counter and and uh, because it looked the same as it did in the '60s and the '70s, it hadn't really changed anything. And the lights that were over the counter, my dad and I hung them together when I was a kid. That kind of thing, and you know, it was a way for me to. It was a way for me to go back and see my dad again, in a way, because. Uh, you know, I could, in a way I could, I could feel his presence there and, um, to go down there now and during the pandemic, cause I walk around a lot downtown and to see it stripped and empty was sort of a shock, but that happens, uh, honestly, if you stay in one place your whole life, you one by one, everything seems to go away and it's a difficult thing to deal with. um, um that people that leave and don't look back never have to deal with because uh all over the city now things are disappearing that i that i knew when i was when i was coming up
2: so and there's i think there's something really nice about about novels about tv shows about all different varieties and forms of art and how they are like these time capsules that can always represent like the time that they were written in and the time they represent. And so kind of in turn, when you also wrote for the Pacific, uh the miniseries, uh, how deeply personal and how excited were you to be a part of that work as also like an homage uh to your father?
1: Yeah, my dad had fought as a Marine in the Pacific in the Philippines, and um and uh when I got I, it's the first job I ever went after. Um, I I called my agent and said, I want to get, I want to get on that show. It's the only time I've ever done that before or since. And so I, I did get on it and my dad was, um, you know, at the end of his life and he, he knew that I was doing it. He never got to see it, but he knew that I was doing it. And that was the purpose of it. Um, so yeah, it was a tremendous honor to be able to do that for him. And, um, and you know i think the show's pretty good so that that can go without being said yeah absolutely
2: in the case of that show also did you um did you inject a little bit of your father or maybe this maybe the stories that your father told you into the storytelling that was this show
1: i tried to i tried to yeah i mean um i i'm pretty sure i was the only guy on that show who had somebody in their family who served in the pacific and and i had known his friends and who, um, many of whom were also um, Marines that had been there, and um, and so the uh, the episode they had they had already beat out most of the stuff uh, when I got there, and I asked for the episode that is not a combat episode at all. It's a very quiet episode where the um, where the uh, Marines go to Melbourne in Australia and they're on leave, and I asked for that because. Uh, I, I wanted to write, there's a, there's a huge Greek, Greek population in Melbourne. It's, it's actually the biggest Greek population in the world outside of Athens, Greece. And I, having read up on it, I knew that the Marines, many of them had met Greek girls while they were there. The Australian men were gone a, at war other, in other theaters. And the Marines were there. And they were dating Australian women. And then a lot of these guys dated Greek women and they got taken into Greek families and were fed very well and, and cared for and so on. And I wanted to write about that. And that's, and that's was my, that was really my contribution to the show.
2: George, before we get you out of here, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Is there anything you would like to promote? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I have a movie uh, that I made called DC Noir that is based on my short stories. And uh, I directed one of them. My son directed, Nick Pelicanis directed another. Um, um, uh, Banga Akinabe, who uh, people know as uh, Chris Partwell on The Wire and uh, Larry Brown on The Deuce, he directed one. And a guy named Stephen Kinagopoulos directed another one. That's on Amazon Prime. If you get that, you can watch it. Um, and it's been announced that we're doing a, uh, David and I are doing a new show in Baltimore, we start shooting this summer. It's called "We Own the City," and it's uh, based on the book of the same name about uh, this, the the uh, a police situation. Let's say in Baltimore that was a national story. Uh, I can't say much more than that, but. That'll be coming to uh, HBO in 2022. We are
0: extremely thrilled about that. By the way, very very excited to to, to see what happens there. And uh, wh- one more thing, uh, one more thing before we we finish up. Um, you you use basketball a lot throughout a lot of your stories. I noticed. So I'm endlessly yep.
1: curious. Are are you a Wizards fan? Yeah, I'm a Wizards fan. Sure, I was a man. yeah. I mean I was i I I've been a lifelong Knicks fan too since uh since I was a kid because of the uh the great Knicks team that was Clyde Frazier, Roman Rowe, Dave, Dave DeBusher, Bill Bradley, and Willis Reed. Oh, the yeah. Fans. There we go. But I do love the Wizards, and, uh, you know, they're going to make a playoff run. This Looking game, like so it. We'll I mean, those are happens. two pretty decent teams.
0: And Bradley Beal's amazing. <laughs> Bradley Beal's amazing, and the Knicks are having a legendary run. Star
1: Westbrook's letting it up, you know, it's good Yeah,
0: Great time to be a Wizards and a Knicks fan. Congratulations on that one, too. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, man. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Absolutely.
2: Thank you, George.